and welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres. I'm here with Sarah Robertson. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? Hi, Dan. I'm doing great. Who do we have on the show today? We have a very special guest, special education teacher, Kimberly Salden Hulin, here with us in the studio. Um, you, Kimberly, have been a teacher for a long time, and I wanted to talk about education on this show, but specifically about reading. People are like, reading? That's that's important, right? It's probably the most important thing students do. It's one in of my favorite things. Absolutely. And what caught my attention about this topic is not only the importance of reading, but that since COVID, test results for reading have dropped across the board. And I just wanted to share there was a CNN article and that's what really triggered this for me is that we've seen a 7-point decline in reading in the last decade. 3 to 4 points in middle to high performing students and six to seven points lower for lower performing students. There's an educational gap, there's a racial gap, there's a lot of gaps here, but it's scary to me that we're seeing this drop occur right now because if we're seeing problems in literacy, what are gonna be the consequences for the future of education five, 10 years down the road. And I think this is something that we don't do too well in America for some reason anymore is make investments today, see some improvements and double down so you get the results five, 10 years down the road. And that's like really terrifying for me as you think about education because when you're investing in somebody's education, you're investing in their life 10, 20 years down the road. And so my first question to you is this, what is the state of reading across America, and maybe specifically in Massachusetts as well, right now? Well, reading is a very complicated process. Um, there's lots going on uh, for a student when they learn to read. Um, I think what's happening right now in education is that there are two schools of thought. Um, one is the dominant one right now. You hear a lot about the science of reading. Um, and that, uh, I think that that boom is happening right now in response to um, a whole language movement that was very popular, uh, Reader's Workshop. And um, really what uh, a lot of schools invested in the curriculum of Lucy Calkins and the educational belief that children learn best by discovering how systems work rather than being told how to do something. And so now um, what you hear a lot of, it isn't new, the science of reading isn't new, but um, what we're hearing a lot of is that uh, with cognitive science and knowing how the brain works, um, we are seeing a um, push for structured literacy, which provides for explicit and systematic and sequential teaching of literacy at multiple levels. Um, that there's that the sound of uh, the sound of words, which is our phonemes, mm -hmm. letter sound relationship, which is phonics and the alphabetic principle, mm -hmm. syllable patterns, morphemes, vocabulary, sentence structure, and text structure. So it, it's going back to um, back to the to the basics. basics it, it's simplified. Um, oh. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit how, about how this connects back to your job as a special education teacher at Shutesbury Elementary School. If you want to unpack some of those big terms and big ideas you yeah. just shared. So um, when I was doing my graduate work um, way back in the late, late 90s, mid to late 90s, um, 
this kind of work um, I was doing uh, because with students with uh, dyslexia or uh, learning differences, uh, you need to unpack um, how language works. And um, so I was getting this kind of training, but uh, what I discovered is that not all teachers, and I think what what uh, the, the press um, is finding is that not all teachers are as well-versed in um, how our language works. And, and I want to go into that. Um, so, okay, if we're going back to the basics, what have we been doing in terms of teaching literacy for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years? What model have we been doing? I mean, if, there, if there's one school of thought, which is the science of, of reading, what was the alternative to that? Well, I, I'll go back to this uh, reading workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the f- it, it was more of a philosophy. When I was introduced to it, I, I thought, this isn't a curriculum. It's a philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the philosophy was, and it, it's a great philosophy, get books into students' hands and um, and they'll somehow magically become better readers. Um, so you teach a strategy or you t- teach, um, yeah, a strategy of um, reading comprehension and and then send the kids off with a book on their level and they would read about that and then write about it rather than doing this direct systematic uh, you know, the parts of a word and uh, the sounds that those letters make. And there's also a thing with this Reader's Workshop and whole language is uh, it's a three cueing. And basically it, it said, if you come to a word you don't know, check the picture, look at the first letter and make a guess. Mm. And what people have found is that that's not only not the way to do it, that it could be detrimental for kids later on when they're when they're developing more skills for mm. reading rather than relying on the sounds of the letters mm. um, to decode more and more difficult words, mm-hmm. um, they're guessing. They're guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the scary part. In doing research for this interview, I came across George W. Bush, who people probably forget by now, um, had invested a lot. <laughs> when do we forget about him, Sarah? I don't know. You gave me a look. <laughs> probably haven't. But they invested, the government, you know, invested in No Child Left Behind, which was a signature educational achievement. We were going to put billions of dollars into education. It was going to improve education. It was going to create standards across the board. And I don't want to go into all of the, the legislation behind it, but there was something about literacy. And they invested in a program, if I'm not mistaken here, it was called Literacy First. And they put in about a billion dollars each year to not only train teachers, but to get those teachers in the classroom to improve literacy results. Because, and this connects into another question I had is, literacy is really important. If we can get this correct and right, and you're making improvements and, t- and students are learning how to read more effectively, it does facilitate everything else that will come through it. Because I think about my life and saying, well, okay, if I don't have the ability or skills to read the text, and understand it. You just give up. Yeah. Yes. Reading, if if you can't read, you can't learn. You can't learn. 
And then what ends up happening is we then talk about all the social consequences of it. Yeah. Right. You participate in democracy if you can't read the bills you're voting on. You can't on. read the bills you're voting on. Yes. Or, you know, the level of people with dyslexia who end up in prison. And then, then they tell themselves they're stupid. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, it's not you're stupid. It's like you've had this go on in your rest, most of your life and you couldn't learn because of that. And had you gotten the proper education, then you actually could have learned and could have been able to to learn during school and you wouldn't have had to drop out or something like that. So we pay the social consequences of it much later right. in life. The reason why I bring up George W. Bush and this No Child Left Behind Act is they spent about $3 billion, according to at least a, a government report, an inspector general for the Department of Education reported back. After spending this amount of money, there was no discernible improvements that they could find. It was, according to a Democratic representative, George Miller here, he described it as severely mismanaged, poorly implemented, and full of conflict of interests. So big business came in and said, oh, we we can teach people how to read. And apparently, whatever they were doing had no results. And in fact, I mean, even pre-COVID, it largely stagnated. There was no return on this investment. So I just wanted to go into that. How hard is it for us to learn what effective literacy is, I guess. Well, I I think for um, the No Child Left Behind, a big portion of that was assessment. Mm. Um, And and assess, 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 and then we'll look at those assessments. And if you're not meeting a standard that has been set, then we'll come in and overhaul. Mm. Um, So I don't think it was all the investment into programs and teaching, but there was a lot of investment into assessing how well schools are doing or how Mm. poorly schools Schools are doing. doing. Um, And I think that, you know, with the phonics push of of No Child Left Behind, Mm. um, that it turned off a lot of liberals Mm. uh, from phonics approach. Mm -hmm. And structured literacy is is so much more than just phonics. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just wanted to say that. No, I was just wondering, you know, didn't get the results we expected, I guess was my question uh, from teachers. And after spending this amount of money doing not only the training, but getting teachers in the classroom, they spent more time actually teaching students how to read. So there was a large investment made in training teachers, getting them to into the classroom to help students. And it turned out there was no improvements, at least in comparison. So, so what I know mm-hmm. of what there's a tiered level of support in mm. schools uh, right now. And tier one is the general education population and what you see in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Tier two are kids that uh, need a little support. And tier three are those kids that have been um, uh, identified as having learning difference mm-hmm. and need an IEP. Mm-hmm. So what we saw at the tier one level mm-hmm. is this whole language push and this teacher college um, coming out of Columbia, mm-hmm. which was a very whole language, um, as I mentioned before, kind of a teacher stands up in front of the class and talks about um, good readers check back on their sentence if it doesn't make sense. But what wasn't going on was was a phonics approach mm. so in the in the early grades or right. a very little phonics approach. Only after 2018, I think that this. This Heinemann curriculum, this teacher's college reader's workshop, only after 2018 did they add a phonics element into it. So 
I, I, I'm not sure of the connection between No Child Left Behind and what and, has happened what has with happened. that. Yeah. But I do know that, that, you know, different pedagogies. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, Before uh, we take a break, go ahead. Um, I want to um, hark back to what you said about um, increasing assessments. I think that was one of the results of No Child Left Behind. And that, in my eyes, has also had kind of a detrimental impact on public education. So under-resourced school districts teaching to a test, how has that impacted students? It's just from from March to May, um, it seems that uh, schools, it's, it's a different feel in schools. Um, days are fragmented. Uh, kids spend a lot of time testing, actually testing. Um, there's, you know, four four days, four full days. Um, but then, you know, it, with every grade, or not every grade, but uh, three and up. And uh, for fifth grade, it's it's three, six days, I think. And it's just, it's disruptive to the learning. Um, there is some, you know, prep. Kids get anxious. It's, it's just, it's necessary to assess what you're doing. I just don't think the way that it's happening is, is a good thing. Mm. How about the way that it affects special education students or students with IEPs? I'm sure MCAS is especially stressful for them. Yes, it is. It is. Um, and uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a helpful test as far as teachers are concerned because th- the results of it don't come out until they, they take it in the spring. It doesn't come out until the fall. And um, those kids have gone to an, the next grade. And I think that the, the testing a lot of times is a gotcha because it doesn't necessarily give us information about how a child learns or how a child isn't learning. It's just it's just very disconnected mm. from the educational experience. Thank you for that, Kimberly. We are speaking with Kimberly Solit Poulin. She is a special education teacher at Shutesbury Elementary School and a researcher on literacy. And when we come back, we're going to ask about how we can better prepare teachers. Hello and welcome back to Panorama. My name's Sarah Robertson. I'm here with my co-host Dan Torres and we are speaking with Kimberly Saldit Poulin from Shutesbury Elementary. We are talking about literacy and preparing our students for the future. Um, and I think Dan has a question. Yeah, I wanted to know about this National Council on Teacher Quality report that came out that said Massachusetts is ranked 35th in the country for teacher preparation in reading. And uh, specifically, they gave a shout out to Baypath, Worcester State, and Gordon College. I believe they got A's across the board. But all the other colleges uh, of education uh, got D's or F's. That's crazy. I thought Massachusetts was supposed to be known as the state for education. Yeah. And so I wanted you to maybe criticize the, the report. BU came out with a state, the, the dean of the college uh, came out with a statement uh, criticizing, I mean, appreciating the, the report. Uh, but it was a little concerning that only three colleges were, were ranked uh, rather highly here on teaching, reading, and literacy. So can you talk a little bit about that? So I think uh, what's happening right now is the focus on cognitive science and what we're learning about how the brain works. And um, while I said, you know, it isn't so new, I think that all the publicity with the science of reading movement has brought to these programs where you're teaching teachers, there's so much to learn. Um, There's so much that elementary 
school teachers need to learn to be in the classroom, and that many programs are doing a school of thought that has been proven to not be effective. Mm. Um, I know in in my work, I didn't do undergraduate uh, education. I did do a graduate program. And in my work, because of special ed, I took linguistic classes. I took, you know, the the, uh, phonics. And you can't teach what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So if there is a school of thought of whole language, reader's workshop, writer's workshop coming out of teacher's college in um, at Columbia in New York, mm-hmm. and that's the push, then there is no time to teach how language works. Mm-hmm. And in order for uh, students to learn how to read, they need to know how language works. How language works. Yeah. I mean, um, that's, I mean that's, to me, critical in, in terms of the learning process. It starts with that basic fundamental. If you can't get that right, it's like, I know I'm going to be repeating myself way too many times in this episode, but nothing else is going to nothing come through it. Nothing else works. Works um, through it. So I think, I think with the study, um, the, the critiques that I've seen mm-hmm. uh, is, is that it was limited in its uh, scope as far as looking at classes. I think it was looking at syllabi. So there, there is a response from Boston U um, yeah. that, that I did read um, that was non-defensive and changes that they're going to make. And I think that's what we're seeing. The constructivist philosophy of education, you know, kids are going to construct meaning if we give them opportunities. That's a wonderful philosophy. But what we're finding with with brain science and, you know, all the, the, the research that's coming out is that we need to do more systematic, explicit instruction. Mm, I, I agree with that. And I also wanted to touch on this topic written down later on in my questions is literacy connects really to an early age. So really, it, 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 we're targeting here elementary school, kindergarten, really young kids. And what I've noticed here in Massachusetts, and I'm pretty sure it's true across the board, is there's a question about gender on this topic that needs to be discussed and mentioned, right? I mean, underpaid, it tends to be in elementary school, a lot more women are teachers here. And it's usually heavily underfunded, right? Teacher salary, especially for the, those K-3 to teachers, can you even just talk, talk about that? I mean, you're a teacher yourself, but is, the, is that also at play here, that there's a lack of attention and emphasis because they think they're little kids? Women tend to be overrepresented at this age in teaching? So it's very interesting um, what you're saying, Dan, is uh, that I think since COVID, I think that it's great that all this attention is coming on to education and uh, reporters are coming out, investigative journalism— the problems have always been there, and as far as funding, as far as the type of respect teachers get, uh, I think that as a nation, we're going to face a, a real big teacher shortage. So I worry that the money that is going to go into this problem is not going to go to the right thing, mm. you know? And what would you think those right things are? Uh, I think for schools to be effective, we need to have staffing. I know, especially in urban areas, school classroom sizes are much larger. Larger, yeah. And, and that's not good 
Yeah. I mean, that's that's just to start off with. But uh, maybe talk about this. COVID as well has impacted education. I mean, in a lot of ways, people had to go through Zoom for two years, especially young kids. Well, they're learning the literacy and how to read. What have we seen or what have you seen in your experiences in the last couple of years about that? Well, it does start with language. It does start with the sounds of uh, of words. And I think with the mask, mm. that that was a barrier for kids to see how, what shape your lips and your teeth for these words. Because um, as I said before, before we have phonics, we have phonemic awareness. And mm. that's that that words are made up of sounds. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that visual of how the sounds are being made, mm -hmm. um, then that's a barrier. Um, also, the screen, you know, there was, it's, it was so frustrating to be a teacher during that time because engagement was limited for kids, especially at that young age. You can't expect them to, to, to interact with a screen. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Like, what could we accomplish if we just paid teachers more? <laughs> this is my question. I think it's I think it's more than the money. Although you, it's really crazy when um, instructional assistants who are not teachers but they work with the most difficult kids can make more money at a Amazon warehouse mm -hmm. than they can make at a school. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's more of respect and looking at the profession as as essential and and impactful. I mean, and, a lot of people go go in for for not the money, but for the the yeah. love and dedication to yeah, I mean, teaching. Yeah, to to reframe my question, like how do we get talented, dedicated teachers to stay in the profession after COVID when it was hard for the students, but it was really hard for the teachers as well. And I think that, you know, we have to um, look at class sizes. We have to look at resources. We have to look at, I, I, I just think of the school committee meetings, um, how contentious they've been that, you know, it's, it's parents are frustrated, understandably. I'm a parent myself, but that uh, th there's a reframing that needs to happen that that we're all in this together and are we're all thinking of what's best for kids and and when we spend time working against each other then that's not good yeah well, we're talking here with uh, Kimberly Saldit Poulin, special education teacher at Shootsbury Elementary and uh, we'll be right back here on Panorama Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Kimberly Saldit-Poulin. She's a special education teacher at Shrewsbury Elementary School. And we were talking about some of the challenges that schools are facing post-COVID, throughout COVID, that have um, really left them in a tight spot. I know there are some extra COVID relief funds that really help some schools get through that, but I don't think those are sticking around. No, and uh, we're very fortunate at Shootsbury Elementary School. It's a wonderful little school in the woods, and um, we're a family there. And we were able to have an extra reading interventionist, reading specialist, and also an at-risk counselor that, that we were able to fund through COVID relief funds. Unfortunately, th those positions are in danger of being cut after this year. And I think that's the case with a lot of schools. So, you know, what happens to those kids who were 
in need of that position. Mm. And have those positions had made a big difference in students' educational experiences in your opinion? Definitely. To come back from from this global pandemic and all the trauma with kiddos that are at risk already and being re-traumatized by the COVID, that, that these positions were very important and the literacy uh, involved uh, with the reading specialist, the additional reading specialist was essential or is essential. Uh, unfortunately, it's unknown at this time if uh, there will be funding. I mean, the way it's going, it's unlikely that they will have the funds. Right. Given the budget constraints, the reductions of federal support, I mean, it's not one with a crystal ball able to predict the future, but it just seems likely that a lot of these positions will be eliminated. Yes, um, yes. Unfortunately, and I think, you know, it's not a one-year turnaround um, from having a two- or three-year pandemic where everything is done online. So I, I don't know what's going to happen there. And I think that's just compounding all the problems that teachers are already dealing with. Right. There's always um, been a, um, a shortage of funds. funds. But let's talk about where the funds are going that are being spent on education. Can you talk a little bit about the business side of literacy and reading? Uh, billions are spent on it. We're not really seeing the results, but who's making some of this money? So we were talking about No Child Left Behind, and MCAS is a statewide test, accountability test, a testing company, a Pearson, their net worth uh, last year or this year, 2023, I think the report came out just a couple days ago, $1.07 billion. Um, and that's big business. Wow. Uh, what do, what service do they provide? Well, they're mostly assessments. Uh, they do the teacher, uh, the MTELs, which are the tests for licensure. Mm -hmm. They do uh, the state standardized tests. They do some curriculum. And an, an, another interesting fact uh, as far as curricula out there, uh, the uh, reader's workshop that I referenced, the, the whole language reading and writing that came out of teacher college, they have made this company, Heinemann, who, who publishes that, made at least $1.6 billion in the past decade. Wow. And that's also an educational educational company mm. um, that sells products. Yeah. To, to teachers and different to district. schools. To districts, right? Yes. I mean, that's that's where probably a lot of the money is being spent. It isn't, like you've been saying, it's not on teacher salary, hiring new teachers or hiring more assistants. And I think we're seeing this problem in education uh, just multiply. And I think we're going to, the problem here is the big problem is we're shooting ourselves in the foot and we're going to see the results of these mistakes five years from now, 10 yes. years from now. We're yes. really going to see it all across the board. And I think people are just going to ask ourselves, like, why are people struggling to, to read or to read more complicated texts? Yes, and I, yeah. I, I do see changes happening. Um, I am relatively new at uh, my current school, at mm -hmm. the school that I was uh, last. They were a reader, reader's workshop um, model. I think they have since changed. But everybody at uh, Shootsbury is on board with the science of reading. We're all very excited um, about it. And we've been practicing it, you know, starting at the, the, the young ages, starting even in pre-K, uh, working. And that, that science of, of, of reading, just specifically, is that connecting the phonics back to the words it's, and not having kids guess what the words mean? Right, in and it's it's, so. it's a systematic, explicit, uh, structured literacy 
program. And so phonics is one piece, phonemic awareness is one piece, fluency, reading comprehension. It's not just one thing, but it is very explicit. It's 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 structured, structured literacy. I mean, it, yeah, it feels like that should have been the investments. I think the other ones just, to me, just seem like, yeah, you'll figure it. Here's how it feels for a person who is not involved in teaching or literacy. It feels like what we were doing previously, so during the No Child Left Behind, spent billions of dollars in young kids learning. It was like, well, listen, kids, just going to figure this word out. It's in front of you. It's in a book. Uh, you, you'll figure it out. You'll associate it eventually. And if you don't know what the word means, just take a guess. Look I at mean, the first letter. Look, look at the first and... letter and take a guess. Maybe you'll know what it means. And it just, to me, it says like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm sorry. I am not attacking. I don't want to be known as attacking education. I believe in it. And I believe spending more, you get the results for it. But it's also a really important question. I think this is the hard question is, where does the money go? Because it's one thing if I make the budget for education, you know, $100 billion across the country. But where is the money allocated to to who and to what? And I think that those are the sort of maybe boring questions that people don't want to have on the radio. But I think they're the really important questions because other countries like they just throw out a couple, Finland, Canada. I've seen all of these uh, countries in education testing um, and, and, and uh, sorry, and education assessment for their students. And they're just wiping the United States off the floor here. I mean, they're, they're, they're ranked Finland, Norway, all these countries, Canada. Canada, which, by the way, one in four Canadians aren't born in Canada. So it's not like Canadians don't have uh, diversity in their country, and yet you still see results in a lot of their education. Specifically here, I'm thinking uh, math and, and probably literacy. Um, just th- They're just beating us today. And I think the consequences of this is, to me, long-term, medium to long-term, five years out, 10 years out. But uh, And I think yeah. that it is a problem beyond the school yeah. house um, that needs to be addressed. So, and, so yeah. quickly, before we take a break and go to our last segment is, talk about the role of like parents' community uh, outside. Like, How does that play in a role in terms of reading? Well, it's interesting when we're talking about these test scores. Um, my son is 20 years old, and when he was uh, becoming a reader, uh, we didn't have to battle screens as much as parents are battling screens. That is a factor that we need to pay attention to and uh, need to be um, aware of. Yeah, and can I just quickly interrupt there uh, with the screens? Is It is harder to read a long piece on a screen, right? I think there's some science behind this, right? To read a really dense article where you're screening and things are popping up everywhere, your ability to focus and attention. Look how many tabs I've got open on my laptop right now. How many tabs? Well, I, the I, same think, thing I think yeah. more for the young kids is that um, we've we've forgotten how to be bored. Mm. And I think when I was a kid, um, when I was bored, I'd open a book and I don't think that that happens as much anymore. And as far as uh, community and parents, we're all so busy all the time. Um, and so language kind of falls by the wayside. Mm. Um, I also think the natural world, um, when I was a kid, we'd go out Saturday morning and we wouldn't come back until the sun went down. Wow. And I think that's important and we're missing that. Yeah. that And that's a big part of the educational experience is also to get out of the classroom once in a while and go out and actually explore that you have it because it is so tempting that when you have computers and 
you know, artificial intelligence and you get to kind of stay there for hours and you get to explore this world. I think people are neglecting the sort of, uh, uh, well, maybe not here in the Valley so much, but you're kind of neglecting the environmental factors that play into education and exploring. And or just the socialization too. Like uh, someone gave me a tip for interacting with children once and they were just like, just talk to them like they're adults. And I think children maybe being around adults in relaxing social situations where they're just hanging out probably helps with language learning. Yes, and I, definitely. I bet that doesn't happen as much nowadays. No, it doesn't. I, I use the example of uh, being at the grocery store with my son. I didn't have a phone or an iPad, and so we would have conversations. I, when he was very little, I would be the one that w- would be talking, um, mm-hmm. but even in the grocery store and just observing everything and asking questions about everything, that's really the basis of literacy because literacy is language. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Kimberly. We have been speaking with Kimberly Saldit Poulin. She's a teacher at Shutesbury Elementary School, and you're listening to Panorama, and we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Kimberly Saldit Poulin. She is a teacher at Shutesbury Elementary School and a researcher on literacy and education. And we've been talking about a lot of the challenges that were introduced by COVID and even pre-COVID um, when it comes to students learning how to read. Um, but in, in your experience, what are you seeing change about education and how has the like art and science of teaching evolved to meet some of these challenges? So uh, the the first year back from COVID was a difficult one, um, but but by the end of last year, I was seeing so much progress uh, with my students and uh, more stamina and uh, just a uh, joy returning um, in their eyes about learning. And this year, my colleagues and I are uh, seeing things kind of get back to normal. And so we're able to take all of this science of reading, um, this explicit, this cognitive uh, science leading to explicit instruction, and we're able to take that and give our personal um, flair to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we're not dealing with as many behaviors and kids are more comfortable and just having fun in the classroom again, um, but from a science base, from a uh, systematic uh, instruction and taking it from that base and bringing it up. How do, how do you get kids excited about reading? Because I know as a kid, I, I didn't like reading when I was a little kid. But like, how do you get them outside excited? Just I just read on my own for fun. And it seemed like when I was growing up, Almost nobody wanted to read for fun or something like that. But what do you say? Hey, speak for yourself. Oh, I'm sorry, Sarah. You, you're a reader. Yeah, I speak for myself. So if you teach a child the basics of reading, uh, the phonemic awareness, the phonics, and they are able to internalize those rules, the alphabetic principle, and they have practiced with decodable text, there is a joy that you see in their face when they have completed that book. Mm. Um, Just this past year, uh, we read an abbreviated version of Peter Pan, and 
what we were able to do with my third graders after we finished, um, we were able to take the characters from Peter Pan because they had gotten the, the basics of how to attack words and how to put those words together in sentences. And, um, and they were able to comprehend the story. We were able to take a character from the story and they created a story about that character. Mm. Um, so it was it was magical in that way, but without that basic knowledge of how language works, mm. then they can't take it to the next level. level. Yeah. And th- I mean, in the way that um, re- reading and writing just underpin everything that we do in society, I'm surprised we ha- we've taken this long to even get around to writing. How does... I think with writing also, we got into the whole language and there is so much about writing that you you need to know semantics, but you also, semantics, which is vocabulary, You obviously you need to know how to encode or spell words. But I think one of the things that has been missing for a while is the syntax, you know, how uh, parts of speech aren't taught anymore. But now we're seeing a a renewal of that okay. uh, in some of the curriculum. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I don't know, go, going through schools here in Western Massachusetts, I noticed that writing, I think, is a weakness for a lot of students, way too many students. I think it just structured, and I'm here talking about students maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s in that era, which uh, it seemed like they were trying to teach us writing and it, it wasn't working. And then I think in recent years, like you were hinting at, they didn't even try, at least <laughs> when I was going through elementary school, they tried to teach the art well, of writing. Well, we're, we're always trying. Okay. Um, sometimes, sometimes we're trying... Uh, uh, Sorry, the parts of speech. I know you were trying. I meant to say specifically they weren't even teaching the parts of speech. But if you don't know the parts of speech, then you can't teach grammar. And then how do I expect that future employee to articulate themselves in an email if they don't know what a noun, a verb, right, dir- direct right. object, but indirect object are? What teachers are competing with nowadays is very different than what teachers were competing with. So a lesson about the parts of speech isn't as uh, high-paced as a video game. Mm. So, you know, kids go home and they play their video games and then they come to school and how do we keep their... But that's a whole different conversation. No, but that's the question. Tell me that. That Tell me that. How do do students compete with... I mean, how do teachers compete with that? Well, we just... Try to make it exciting, and uh, and yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I, I think the future, of, or at least what I'm seeing now, Sarah, and I don't know what you think about this as well, is that um, they want to try to replace teachers with these AI systems and say, look, if the students are always going to be on computers, why don't we just make the teachers on the computers? What do you yeah, think about well, that? Well, we've seen that uh, computerized teaching it d- doesn't work with the, the the whole covid it doesn't work you need the interaction of humans to humans humans yes social humans. and emotional learning yes. is hugely yes. central yes. to yes. education we can't just skip that um, <laughs> reading and writing are so central to not just having a job not just writing an email but like participating in democracy and understanding complex problems and i Hope that as a te- I'm sure as a teacher you see these long-term effects and you're thinking about these things. But um, I don't know how, how do we I don't know how do we prepare our students for a future that they need to participate in and discuss 
really complex things when they had maybe a rocky start to their education, especially I'm thinking particularly about the COVID generation. I will say that um, one thing I noticed post-COVID going back into the classroom, I wasn't out of the classroom for very long during COVID because uh, I'm a special education teacher and uh, in the district that I was working at, the vulnerable students came back right away. But one of the things that that I noticed um, that was beneficial about a pandemic, if you can say anything's beneficial, mm-hmm. is the amount of compassion um, that these kids had for one another mm-hmm. was greater than I had ever seen it. So that was something that was pretty remarkable. That's great. That's a positive sign. Yeah. I mean, that they have that, at least before COVID. I think that was all of the questions I had. I can leave it there. What do you do, Joanne? Yeah. Yeah. Are there any, like... Final points about want to leave us with. I know. I know we kind yeah. of bounced around. Like I, I think that you know just the importance of language. Um, that you know we take it for granted, but I think it's you know we don't talk as much as we used to. We don't. We're communicating we, differently. Yeah, we. You know, I I look at young people sitting at a restaurant. And they're all on their phones, mm. you know. So I think that that has an impact. Obviously, you know, yep. teachers are going to be with this whole movement, you know, teaching, going back to the basics and really doing it systematically. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a breakdown uh, societally mm-hmm. with you know, just this lack of connection. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so connected, World Wide Web, but it's it's really a lack of connection. It, it's flatter thought. It's with less nuance, I think. And that's why I think I brought up the idea of just, like, how do we be responsible citizens in this democracy if thinking is a little more two-dimensional? Right, right. Be- and, then, of- and then what we do see a lot of times happening now with education is this this uh, divisiveness, this, you know, in the school committee meetings, we see people yelling at each other. And I mean, even this debate, even this science of reading versus whole language, you know, it becomes kind of ugly at times. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, a classroom, an elementary school classroom is a beautiful place. I encourage everybody to come visit, to look at it, um, because kids are really hopeful. You see the most progress from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, thank you for doing what you do. I don't think it's easy work. It's hopefully rewarding. It uh, definitely it is. is. Rewarding. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful profession, and I encourage young people to get involved in it. Um, we need, we it. need dedicated teachers. We need uh, strong teachers and resilient teachers. So right. if you're on the fence, go for it. There you go. The next generation. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for thank inviting you. me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Kimberly Saldit Poulin, who is a special education teacher at Shootsbury Elementary, talking to us here on Panorama. I'm Dan Torres here with Sarah Robertson, and we've been talking about literacy and education and the state here before and after COVID. And uh, thanks again for listening to Panorama, and we'll be back next week. 